Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. What are we teaching people about this time, dear? Stuff. Stu- oh, stuff. Is it cool stuff? I think so, okay, but it depends on the person. We are within the mission statement, depending on the person. We I have guess. a mission statement? Yeah, you just said it. I just thought that was our tagline. Three years, three years. (laughs) I thought we had a secret manifesto I didn't know about. I promise, if we ever have a manifesto, it will be widely publicized. With lots of Dada influence, right? Either that or or it will be an FBI exhibit. But we'll see how it goes. So what are we talking about this week? Uh, we are going to go down the historical path to look at Louisa May Alcott and her life Mm -hmm. and her family. Who is Louisa May Alcott and why is she historically significant? She is an American novelist that Uh is known for writing Little Women. Oh, The Borrowers. No. Thumbelina. No. The Secret World of Arietti, back in theaters again. No. Okay, what Little Women, then? The book Little Women, soon to be the billionth movie (laughs) titled Little Women. I think it's only the eighth film adaptation of the novel Little Women. Who voiced Arietti? (laughs) Because I feel like it might be one of the people who's in that movie. Saoirse Ronan was one of the dubs. Well, this just comes full circle right now, because she is our upcoming Joe. Yeah. In the new movie that comes out in a couple months that I am very excited about. Called Little Women. Called Little Women. Which is about... Little Women. But you said it's not the borrowers. How little are the women? (laughs) How little are the... Quantify the women. They're normal-sized women. Then stop calling them little. I mean, they're little compared to today's standards because, like, people in, like, the 1800s tended to be a lot smaller than, like, current-day people. Because of the malnourishment? Uh, And, you know... The scarlet fever? All the chemicals we eat nowadays, probably. (laughs) All the radioactivity going on in the world. I don't know. That's made us bigger? We're Godzillas now? Maybe! Have you ever looked at a shoe in a museum? I think we're getting off track. (laughs) So... Uh, Louisa May Alcott uh, was born uh, in November in 1832 mm-hmm. uh, to uh, Amos Bronson Alcott and Abigail Abamay. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about her parents for a bit. Her parents were probably an important part of her family. So uh, her father, Bronson, went to work as a traveling salesman, mm-hmm. um, but he didn't do very well at that. So in 1823, uh, before she was born, he came home to Connecticut mm-hmm. in debt to his father after some several unsuccessful sales trips. Like, he was not good at it. Uh, <laughs> he was so bad at it that his dad wouldn't let it slide. <laughs> yeah. He was also worried about how uh, life as a salesman would, like, have a negative impact on his soul. Mm-hmm. So he turned to teaching. And got a job as a school teacher uh, and started on a, what was going to be a very long road as a controversial reformer of education. Which is good for the soul, but bad for the nerves. 
Yep. Bad bad for the sleep debt. Bad for <laughs> a lot of things. But it was also like good. You know, he was like, well, let's add backs to benches so students are more comfortable. <laughs> and let's have like adequate heating and light so they can work better. And, you know, let's take the focus away from just repetition mm-hmm. and have conversations and learn. Being a reformer was so easy in the <laughs> 1820s. Because things were so bad, it wasn't hard to you do. You could just say, hey, how about lamps? And people would applaud you in the street. How about like a real chair? <laughs> oh, Just thought we'd try it, see how it goes. So he was uh, influenced uh, by Johann Henrik Pestalozzi. Uh, a Swiss education reformer. And that's where he got a lot of his ideas and kind of mm-hmm. went crazy. Yeah, the, the Swiss had invented the furnace. They they were they had very warm schoolhouses. Yeah. Well, being a teacher, uh, Samuel Joseph May introduced Elcott to his sister, Abby May. Mm-hmm. Or Abba, as she was also often known. He decided to take a chance on her. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He was her super trooper. Okay. I love you. I love you too. Uh, So she came from a prominent New England family. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. She was actually the great, great granddaughter of Samuel Seawall, a judge in the Salem Witch Trials. And her great aunt, Dorothy Quincy, married John Hancock. (laughs) So like, a lot of interesting stuff going on there. And her penmanship was probably pretty nice. (laughs) What if it was atrocious? (laughs) He's just like rolling over in his grave like, my family, what are you doing? Yeah. 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 So she was uh, primarily educated privately and would become uh, an activist for uh, women's suffrage, the temperance movement. She was an abolitionist and uh, worked as a social worker um, in the future. Mm -hmm. Um. As for Bronson, mm-hmm. uh, locals were not very into his new methods, <laughs> and so they were like, nope, my kid's not going there. Back in my day, I developed a hump at age 14, and I liked it. And I f- got frostbite <laughs> while trying to learn my times table with repetition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so a lot of his students were being taken out and enrolled elsewhere, so he got fired and then he school hopped a few times, and none of those lasted very long, mm-hmm. and he was left without a job. Um, so he moved to Boston in 1828 and opened the Salem Street Infant School. And at this school, Abigail applied to be his teaching assistant. Uh, and they were soon engaged and married a couple of years later in 1830. Now, the great thing about teaching infants is when you send them back home, they don't tell their parents about what you did. They weren't actually infants. Well, that's a poorly named school, I (laughs) would have to say. So it was around this time uh, that Bronson and Abigail uh, publicly were stating their, um, their stance on slavery Mm-hmm. They were, you know, against it. Oh, okay. Whew. Yeah, they were <laughs> against it. Something that would become a, a big part of their lives mm-hmm. in the future. Bronson actually became a member of the anti-slavery uh, Boston Vigilance Committee, mm-hmm. uh, which was an anti-slavery group. So he had the school going there. Mm-hmm. Yet again, it was not doing well. 
Because people are like, you too crazy. Chairs. What? No. They should stand. Uh, Repeatedly. <laughs> yes. Um, so this rich Quaker guy uh, named Haynes came around mm -hmm. and he proposed starting a new school in Germantown, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, this is a neighborhood that is now a part of Philadelphia. So they moved there and a um, bunch of stuff happened where they were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do it here. Maybe we should do it in this place. Dragged their feet a bit. Went from having free housing to having to pay for housing. Bunch of stuff. So they were renting a room in a boarding house, uh, and this is where they had their first daughter, Anna Elcott. Aww. Um, yeah. So Haynes, their benefactor, died, um, and things did not go very well financially. Well, um, yeah, their benefactor died. Yeah. Well, he was also, like, helping to recruit students to the school and was paying for some of their <laughs> tuition. Hey, kid, you want to learn some stuff? And you look stupid. Come over here, kid. So, since he's dead, the school started to, you know, fail. Um, and around that time is when Louisa May Elcott was born. And shortly after, the family moved to Philadelphia, and he taught at another school, and it didn't go well. <laughs> There's a theme here. So, uh... How do we consider that he's just a really bad teacher? Good ideas, bad at teaching. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, so then he's like, well, maybe maybe Boston would be better. Maybe the people of Boston would accept mm -hmm. my ways. He's got that vigilance committee back there. Yeah. So in September uh, 1837, or no, nope, in 1834, when Louisa was two, uh, he opened the Temple School um, with 40 students. Uh, now, the school focused on his ideas, which included a focus on conversation over memorization. Mm -hmm. uh, he also opposed corporal punishment to discipline students. Um, it's said that he would, like, offer his own hand when someone did something wrong for the student to strike and, like, say, like, well, it's, you know, if there's any failing, it was my responsibility. And the shame and guilt would be far superior than fear. Ah, yes. He wanted to <laughs> mentally terrorize his students. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know if that's so much better. <laughs> like, let me make you feel so guilty you never do that again. Detention was invented in the 1940s by someone who was sick of everything else. <laughs> so he employed uh, two assistants uh, during this time, uh, both who were and would become uh, prominent female literary figures. Mm -hmm. um, Margaret Fuller and Elizabeth Peabot Peabody. So we're going to talk about them a little bit. Okay. And continue on. So Elizabeth was a writer and a prominent figure in the transcendental movement. After working at the Temple School, she wrote Record of a School, which included the school's plan and philosophy. Mm -hmm. So if you want to learn more about his crazy school, you can read that book. Um, she also went on and opened a bookstore and uh, helped with what was known as the Conversations, um, which were organized by Margaret Fuller uh, starting in 1839. They were meetings for women um, with 
discussions and debates on various subjects. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to help curb the higher education gap between the sexes. So his teaching assistants invented the feminist bookstore. Yes. In a, in a sense. Women and children first. <laughs> there we go. Which is in Chicago. You should check it out. Buy your books there. I feel like those exist a lot of places. Though. Yeah, but like the one you specifically named, Women and Children First, But isn't is here. it the same name as the one on like um, Portlandia? I think that one's Women and Women First. Is it? I think so. It might be Women and Women First. <laughs> but it makes me think that there are many bookstores named Women and Children First. <laughs> Because, I don't know, maybe it's a lot it's... of women. Women and turtle first. <laughs> <laughs> women and otters. I'd be so down with that. <laughs> Your two favorite kinds of people. Yes. Yeah. Actually, no. But otters, <laughs> yes. Can we have, okay, otters and and penguins first. <laughs> the bookstore. You've made all the dolphins very sad. Well, they can't read on land. They'll die. <laughs> So Louisa May Alcott, we aren't even to her yet. She's like six now, I think. Well, we're not talking about her right now. We're talking about these other people. I'm aware. (laughs) So Elizabeth Mm -hmm. was also the business manager for The Dial, uh, the main publication of the Transcendentalists. And in 1844, uh, it published her translation of a portion of the uh, Lotus Sutra. Um, from French. This was the first English version of a Buddhist scripture. Translated um, directly from the original French. You know... <laughs> you, you work with what you got. You work with what you know. Sure. You might know that language. You might not know that one. <laughs> Still the first. Kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and she later went on and opened a kindergarten in 1860. Uh, formal schooling for children under six was pretty much confined to Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, Hence the name. Yes, Uh, but she had a big interest in these methods and through the school and her work as an editor for a kindergarten publication, uh, she helped establish kindergarten as an acceptable, like, form of schooling Mm -hmm. and spread it to the world, I guess (laughs) to the United States. Let's go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Margaret uh, Fuller, who we mentioned as well, uh, was a journalist, editor, critic, women's rights activist, um, also... With the transcendentalists, if you couldn't tell from her other stuff I mentioned so far. She's pretty cool because she was like the first full-time American female uh, book reviewer in journalism. She was the editor for The Dial. She later worked for the New York Tribune. Uh, in her 30s, she was considered the most well-read person in New England. So not a lot of friends. <laughs> uh, how else would you have the time, All right? right? She was also the first woman allowed to use the library at Harvard College and became the first uh, woman Tribune correspondent and uh, advocated for women's right to education and employment, prison reform, the emancipation of slaves. And the reason I talk about these women is because the family, Elcott's mm-hmm. family at this time, was becoming very involved in the trans dentalist movement Mm -hmm. and people like margaret and elizabeth were surrounding the family right you know these are a couple of the women there are many many men such as um henry david thoreau uh waldo emerson etc 
Mm-hmm. These were all people that like were coming over for dinner and lived next door. Um, <laughs> in Louisa's like childhood, she was surrounded by very driven, creative people. Mm-hmm. Important, I feel like, for how she was brought up. <laughs> yeah. So what what were the tenets of uh, transcendentalism? What was it all about? That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. So, so the general idea was that people were born good. Oh, that's nice. Possessed like a power of intuition that they could become like closer to God through nature compared to like organized religion and mm-hmm. uh, things like that. So it was subjective intuition over objective empiricism. Which is why Thoreau just went out and lived in the woods for a while and wrote a book about how nice it was to live in the woods for a while. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Emerson imagining himself an invisible eye floating through the woods. Yep. Yeah. All the, Those all the, had to have been some crazy family dinners. All that other stuff that I had to read in high school and then forgot about until today. Today! <laughs> uh, so, her her family uh, became involved in the trans- Transcendental Club. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it was actually a title that was given to them by the public and not those involved. That's got to be weird club meetings. Everybody's talking about how cool it is to be alone at a club meeting. <laughs> so so the club was a whole bunch of New England people. Mm-hmm. Um, Margaret Fuller and Elizabeth Peabody were there. Well, for Waldo Emerson, who you mentioned, Henry David Thoreau. Whoever. At- all these other people. Whoever's at that party and just like sticks in the corner and tries to make friends with the cat, mm-hmm. everybody at the party thinks that guy's brilliant. He's he knows what's <laughs> what. Yeah. So that's my kind of party, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So they they would get together. They would chat, share ideas. They tried to submit things for to be published in various publications, but their submissions were often rejected um, because they're like, we're not taking stuff from your club. You all crazy. <laughs> uh, so they started the dial, which I mentioned earlier in mm-hmm. 1840. Um, and after a couple months, they actually never had any more like official meetings. They just like wrote to each other and would attend each other's different speaking events Mm-hmm. But never just had a dinner party all together. Yeah. As a club. No white elephant game. <laughs> Movements like this that then eventually become like big signposts in, you know, the history of American literary culture. At the time they seem more like, I don't know, indie RPGs today. It's just the yeah. same five dollars going between everybody's Patreon uh, accounts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, so the dial started in 1840. Mm-hmm. It ended in 1844. It did not make any money. There was only a couple hundred people who were subscribed to it. Mm-hmm. A it lot was of all whom, of these people. Yeah, a, a lot of whom were the contributors to it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So Bronson became a major figure in the movement, um, but his writings were actually, like, heavily criticized for being incoherent. Mm-hmm. Um, he was like the one that I think always came, but everyone was like, oh, he's the weird one. <laughs> but we have to be nice. That's kind of the vibe I get. Mm-hmm. So, have you noticed that every chair in his house has a back? <laughs> what is up with that guy? Uh, Louisa's uh, 
younger sister, Elizabeth, uh, was born in 1835. By the summer of 1837, when Louisa was five, Mm -hmm. um, the Temple School that led us down this road of talking went from 40 students to only 11. Most had left and they had no assistance. So those two people we spend so much time talking about, mm-hmm. even they jump ship by now. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, they had to open the feminist bookstore and, yeah. okay. and stuff. I mean, they, they had their projects. They yeah. had irons in the fire. Yeah. So just like before, his methods were criticized, but there were a few other things that led to the closure, uh, such as his frank conversations um, regarding the gospel, which were seen as blasphemy. Uh-huh. Um, and he would often talk frankly about controversial topics, um, kind of in passing, but like circumcision and birth control. And For that was or like, against on both counts. <laughs> I am not totally sure. Okay. I think for birth control. Oh, probably. Almost certainly. But like circumcision, it could go either way. Yeah, I have at no idea. Time. I have no idea. I want to think Louisa May Alcott's dad was a, a virulent intactivist. Yeah. Because it's funnier that way. All I know is that you didn't talk about those things well, then. Well, no, no. And uh, that did not go over well. <laughs> Even if it was just kind of in passing or answering a student's question, mm-hmm. you don't talk about it. So the school was widely denounced in the public and it led to it being shut down. So in 1840, uh, when Louisa was eight, the family moved to a cottage um, on two acres in Concord, Massachusetts, and they spent three years there, which, if you haven't been really paying attention, is a kind of a long time for them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I can relate, Louisa. It's okay. (laughs) Their three years there, um, she described as... um, perfect, wonderful, Mm -hmm. like, the ideal situation. Um, She began writing poetry during this time, and her youngest sister, Abigail May Alcott, was born in 1840. So uh, the majority of Louise's education Mm -hmm. came from her father, um, but also from friends of the family that were in the movement. So talk about some lessons there. (laughs) So really... Bronson always had four students. Yes. They just lived with him. Yes. But Louisa and her sisters had to work from an early age due to the fact that the family was often struggling financially Mm -hmm. um, because her father never kept a job. (laughs) So Louisa herself was, over the years, a teacher, a seamstress, a governess, a domestic helper, Um, as well as a writer. And her sisters often worked as teachers or seamstresses as well. Mm -hmm. And her mother also worked. (laughs) Um, So, in 1841, uh, her wonderful father came up with the idea of living in a commune. It was the 1840s. They're living in the American Northeast. Obviously, they're going to try a commune. Yeah. Obviously. He's going to create his own commune that's based on human perfection. Mm -hmm. It's a transcendentalist experiment in communal living. Uh, (laughs) They survived by selling hay bales, and that (laughs) company continues to this day. (laughs) So he uh, tried to drive support for this idea. 
uh, specifically with people in England, as that was the home of his strongest group of supporters. Um, there was a group of educators who founded what they called the Elcott Home, or the Elcott House, in Hamsuri. Um, and it was all based on his philosophy of teachings. Mm-hmm. It was like him and uh, Elcott's own inspiration. Um, James Pierre Pont Greaves was the prime organizer behind the Ham Commune uh, Concordium. This was a community and progressive school. He had founded Elcott House about um, three years before Bronson came to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, James followed a strict life as an early riser, um, strict vegetarian, uh, took part in no stimulants, mm-hmm. was celibate, uh, and was all about simple living and... They also experimented with things like astrology there. This was like the lifestyle of this concordium. Okay? The only way to make a transcendental party sound less fun right? is to invite James Greaves. Yeah, they, they were, you know, they emphasized the moral education and the development of the child's like innate spiritual gifts. They were totally hippies. Celibate hippies. Celibate hippies. No free love hippies here. No, no, no. Weird thing, too, is that supporters of the Elcott House were also the key group involved in the formation of the Vegetarian Society of the United Kingdom in 1847. Did not know that there was such an organized organization that far back. I wonder what they get up to these days. They are still active. I just honestly had no idea that, like, vegetarianism existed in the (laughs) mid-1800s. Because I'm like, weren't y'all just trying not to die of a cold? (laughs) They were clearly trying a lot of things. (laughs) It just seems like you don't have the time to worry about that. Uh, Anyways, uh, Chris Lane, who was one of the supporters of Elcott House, joined Bronson in this commune Mm -hmm. so he um bought 90 acres of land back here in the states um to start the commune on and because it was going so well in surrey i mean it hadn't burned down yet at least well they were starting like a completely different thing yeah but yeah so when louisa was 11 her family along with lane and his son and a couple others moved to what they would call the fruitlands mm-hmm um, though it apparently only had, like, three apple trees or something on it. Well, they didn't call it the orchard. <laughs> Spiritual fruits. Yeah. I'm down with it. The commune focused on the idea that spiritual regeneration was linked to physical health. That the outward abs- abstinence uh, is a sign of inward fullness. Kind of makes his opinion on uh, uh, birth control moot. Yeah. When's it going to come up? Ah. So the 14 residents of Fruitland uh, did not eat or use any animal substance. They were vegan before that was a thing. <laughs> before the word was even coined, I bet. Yes. Wow. All right. Uh, so no milk, no honey, leather, wool. Uh, they ate mostly fruit and only vegetables that grew upward because vegetables <laughs> like carrots, beets, and potatoes were forbidden as they showed a lower nature by growing downward. 
Uh-huh. No, no rude vegetables. Yeah. Uh, they drank only water and avoided tea, coffee. They bathed in cold water only and did not partake in artificial light as it would cost them the brightness of the morning. You made your fame on lamps. Lamps in the schoolhouse. Uh, they wore only linen clothes and refused cotton as it exploited slaves. All right. You get behind that. Okay. Property was held communally and no animal labor was to be used because they believed that animals should not be exploited for their meat or labor. Animals were less intelligent and therefore it was their job as humans to protect them. Mm -hmm. And using animals also tainted their work and food since they were not enlightened and therefore unclean. Mm -hmm. But then when winter was getting close and they were like, dang, we don't got enough food, they did get a cow and an ox. Well, you know. Yeah, no. Needs be. So, uh... I could get behind their no lamp thing if it was like a whale oil thing, though. That's uh, not what it was. If it was that, i dig it. That's, yeah. that's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, so Emerson came to visit, and he was like, oh, I'm very impressed by, like, all your hard work, but what you gonna do when winter comes? Because, like, you started a month late, and you are so not growing enough food. <laughs> Especially when they're limiting... What they can plant. Yeah. So that affects your growing season. Yes. And like how much because you're mm -hmm. not using any animals to help you like sow the field. I'm just saying that potatoes are a dense source of complex carbohydrate. It's very efficient. They last long too. Mm -hmm. Root vegetables last a very long time. They store really well. Mm -hmm. Um. So Fruitland did fail that winter they only lasted about seven months and it worst was worst <laughs> theme park ever just awful it uh was due to food shortages um they also had a very harsh winter and you know they had modeled it on like shaker communities um that held properly communally but they like ignored the fact that shaker communities like weren't self-sufficient they, you know, made a lot of stuff, but they traded for things. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of Fruitland was to plan to grow and make everything they would need so they wouldn't have to rely on anyone else. But that means you're having to spread yourself very thin mm -hmm. and not, like, put all your energy into a few places. Also, you know, they weren't always actually, like, working the field. A lot of them had to go philosophize. <laughs> yeah. 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 So again, there are only 14 people, and that was, six of those were the Elcots. Uh, <laughs> two of them were the Lanes, so not that many. And a few of them were a little strange. Really? Uh, <laughs> this commune in the middle of nowhere. There's one dude who left to go experiment in nudism. What's that experiment do? Like, what variable are you measuring? <laughs> How uncomfortable people get around you? <laughs> I don't know. It, are you measuring the wind chill? It did make me very curious to look up the history of, like, nudists. Mm -hmm. But then I got a little scared. I was worried about what I was going to Google. <laughs> Safe um, search on. There there was also uh, someone else who... Longest, like, page ever of information about this dude. So he, like, believed in, like, wearing a big beard which was like not the norm for the time okay mm -hmm. it and, was like, about to be his his whole life revolved around like i got my big beard and apparently he was like 
chased down by some dudes who were like, we're going to cut off your beard. <laughs> and he stabbed them. What? But then he was convicted. No. Of, of assault without like needing, you know, you're not protecting yourself. Right. Uh, you're just stabbing people. Well, I mean, they were attacking him to cut off his beard. But, like, they're not going to kill him, so... But he refused that he was guilty. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, if you pay these fees, like, you can go free. And he's like, no, because I would say I'm guilty. So he ended up in jail for over a year, refusing to pay any of the fines. And he, like, made the guard's life a living hell. America's only political prisoner for the cause of beard freedom. (laughs) Yes. See, see, you've got this this philosophy uh-huh. that has wonderful things to say about man's place in nature. Is also intimately tied with the beginnings of an American like conservation and environmental movement. Uh-huh. But the whole like individual thing means you get some weird narcissists. Yeah, you touch my beard, I will stab you, <laughs> and the right is on my side. Yes. So there was even more about him, but I was just like, you're too much, dude. <laughs> I can't handle you, Beardy. Fruitlands was over, mm-hmm. um, and it definitely left uh, a mark on the Elcott family. Was the mark malnutrition? <laughs> Often, yes. Um, so Abigail, uh, during this time, was threatened that she and her daughters would move elsewhere without him, as they were very fed up with the experience. There was a lot of expectation and stress put on the family Mm -hmm. because he was always trying to achieve perfection. Um, No pressure. And it was said that, you know, he was never recognizing their sacrifices that they were making for him to do all these things Mm -hmm. or, you know, what they were doing day to day to try to keep the family surviving. So there was a lot of conflict um, building up with, with him and his wife and the you know, trickling down to the daughters. Mm-hmm. Not to the point ever of, like, divorce and leaving, but definitely things that would linger. Mm-hmm. The pressure he put on is something Elcott would often, like, she felt like she had to be perfect. Mm-hmm. She always had to do more and be more through her years. Uh, so after leaving Fruitland, they lived in uh, some rented rooms for a while, Um, And later, some of Abigail's inheritance was used, along with some financial help from Emerson, to buy a house uh, in 1850 or in 1845 when Louisa was 13. Uh, They named it Hillside and they stayed there for seven years. Whoa. Wow. Um, Until they moved again and they sold the house to Nathaniel Hawthorne like you do. (laughs) You know. Um, Nice. Yeah. During uh, their time there, uh, they were actually a stop along the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no written record of who was there because you don't want to write down like what (laughs) slaves are staying at your house. Yeah, Um, yeah. But Louisa did briefly- Oh, did they help any of the famous (laughs) slaves? Uh, Louisa did briefly mention in some of her journals and writings that they had people hiding in their house. Mm -hmm. The beards were hiding in a separate- uh, place. The, the beards. They were in the shed. Yeah. Uh, so when Louisa was 15, uh, she vowed that 
I will do something by and by, don't care what, teach so, act right, anything to help the family, and I'll be rich and famous and happy before I die. See if I won't. We're gonna take a break and find out what happens next. (laughs) Finally, we will shrink the women. (laughs) Yes. Fix the little microwave. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. We are here continuing to talk about the life and times of Louisa May Alcott, author of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Okay. So, uh, her first book, Flower Fables, uh, was published in 1849 uh, when she was 17. It was a selection of tales that she originally wrote for Ellen Emerson, uh, daughter of Ralph. Mm Mm-hmm. During this time, Louisa and her older sister, Anna, uh, co-authored a tragedy um, between 1847 and 1849. Oh, it was a biography of their dad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It would not be published in Louisa's life. Uh, It actually wouldn't be published until 1982 um, in a collection titled Comic Tragedies. Mm Mm-hmm. Anna and Louisa would actually often perform plays for their friends. Um, Anna was strongly interested in the stage and, like, secretly wanted to be an actress. Um, and she was known for, for tugging on people's heartstrings. Uh, whereas <laughs> Louisa was known for making people laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, See if I won't. <laughs> Louisa uh, also read and admired uh, the Declaration of Sentiments, which was published by the Seneca Falls Convention on Women's Rights in 1848. Mm -hmm. Um, As mentioned a few episodes ago. Yes. Uh, So this would um, be kind of a a long line in her, her, you know, feelings towards women's rights and a theme very much of like all the people she was around. Mm -hmm. Um, She would actually become the first woman to register to vote in Concord in a school board election. Congratulations. Uh, So in 1854, uh, Louisa became involved in the Boston Theater and wrote the rival prima donnas, uh, which would later, she would later burn it. Because, like, the actresses fought on who would play what part, and she was like, you know what? Screw you. Oh, no. No play for anyone. Oh, no. Life imitates art. It's becoming too real. (laughs) Uh, Around 1857, um, she would move back to Concord, um, and it was during that time that uh, she had a a pretty low, low spot and contemplated suicide. Mm -hmm. She was uh, struggling to find work. And money was really tough, and it was just a rough patch. But the following year, uh, her family moved into what was named Orchard House. Um, She was about 26 around this time. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, about three months before they moved in, uh, her her younger sister, Elizabeth, um, died of scarlet fever. Well, she got scarlet fever... A few years previously, and just never fully recovered. Oh, um, it was like complications of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that year when they moved into Orchard House, um, mm-hmm. Anna and Louisa also helped form the Concord Dramatic Union, 
Um, and another member of the group, John Bridge Pratt, would soon get pretty uh, involved with Anna. <laughs> and they were uh-huh. engaged and married within a couple of years. And what were his thoughts on circumcision and uh, contraception? I don't know. Okay. So between losing her sister mm-hmm. and then her other sister getting married, she felt like her her sisterhood was breaking apart. That's why you need traveling pants. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Gotta gotta get those jeans. <laughs> Invent jeans. <laughs> uh so in uh eighteen sixty she began writing for the Atlantic Monthly. And then during the American Civil War, uh she served as an as a nurse in Georgetown for just six weeks, um, between 1862 and 1863, she intended to be there for three months, but she got typhoid and became deathly ill mm-hmm. and could not continue on. Uh, her letters, though, that she wrote home during this time were revised and published in uh, the Boston anti-slavery paper, The Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later they were collected and published as hospital sketches what it was called not like <laughs> sketched them um so this actually brought her her first critical like recognition for her work now now being in a civil war a hospital seems like a weird place to do sketch comedy though right that's that's different, different oh okay thing. okay different thing instead they they talked about the mismanagement of the hospitals and the indifference of the surgeons and I don't know. It sounds like you put a laugh track on that. You could get some yucks. Yeah. 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 So during the 1860s, uh, Louisa also wrote passionate, fiery novels under A.M. Barnard. Under, like, that was her pen name? Yep. Ah, okay. Yes. Uh, So not under her name, but under that name. Uh, And these included um, stories called... Pauline's Passion and Punishment. Oh my. And a long fatal love chase. Well, that spoils the ending right there. <laughs> um, so a long fatal love chase, um, which was written in 1866, she was actually like traveling Europe before writing it mm-hmm. um, as a paid companion. And when she returned to her family, they were in financial trouble again. Um, and she was asked to write a novel that was suitable for serialization in um, a publication called The Flag of Our Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she wrote this 292-page gothic romance, um, and it was rejected for being too long and, like, too much. Mm-hmm. Um, much like gothic people having a romance. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just too much. She She changed the title to The Fair Rosamond. And uh, rewrote it, but it was rejected again, so she just, like, put it aside. She's like, this isn't happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the edited ver- version ended up at uh, Harvard's library, and the earlier draft went off to auction um, by some of her heirs and then made it to a rare book dealer. And in 1994, it was bought by Kent Bicknell, who was a headmaster at a school and he restored it and then sold the publication rights to Random House. Mm-hmm. And he got one and a half million dollars in advance, but he gave 25% of it back to Orchard House, oh, which is a museum now. Yeah. 25% to the Elcott descendants, 
and 25% to the school that he worked at. Oh, okay. Um, and the original story was released in 1995 for the first time. So he only got just under half a million dollars for something someone else wrote that he kept. Yeah. Yeah, that's better, I guess. You know, you can't blame the dude. <laughs> uh, so in 1868, uh, Thomas Niles, uh, Louisa's publisher, recommended that she write a book about girls and four girls. Mm-hmm. Um, she resisted because she's like, I can't write a story about girls. Like, I just know my sisters. I don't really. <laughs> girls are hard. What's uh, up with them anyway, really? <laughs> like, seriously, girls? Come on. <laughs> well, in, in the 1860s, it was a new time for children's fiction. It was kind of when the first gender division of stories was happening. It was mm-hmm. it was a pretty new thing. It was growing out of you know bigger social constructs related to wealth and class and everything. But I thought gender was immutable. Mm. Aw, yeah. my illusions. Uh, so she she gave it a go, and within a few months, she had a dozen chapters and. Her publisher thought it was boring, uh, <laughs> but his niece liked it. Well, that's market research right there. Well, and they tested it on a few other girls who also loved it, and she was like, well, those are the best critics. Mm-hmm. They know what they like. Children are honest, <laughs> so this must be okay. Yes, but children are also often stupid. But it's written for children, so okay. it's fine. <laughs> Uh, so she continued writing what would become Little Women, the story that would bring her complete success at the age of 35. And see if it doesn't. So the story was actually broken up into two parts. The mm-hmm. The first was known as Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. That was the title. Mm-hmm. A little long. Uh, and that came out in 1868. Uh, the second part, known as Part Second... Um, but would also be called Good Wives but that was a title that she did not give it Mm -hmm. um, would come out in 1869 the super success of this uh, led to her writing sequels by the name of Little Men uh, in 1871 and Joe's Boys in 1886 Mm -hmm. that followed the characters I can understand why uh, she didn't like the title Good Wives because I know some of the things you're about to tell me. But Part Second is the worst <laughs> name for a book in the history of books. Well, you know, these were also, like, printed, like, the serials and stuff, too. Mm-hmm, so it kind of mm-hmm. matter what she named stuff. <laughs> it's a garbage name, Part Second. Oh. So the first printing um, of 2,000 copies sold really quickly, and the printers, like, couldn't keep up. Mm -hmm. And it got her a lot of attention, which she wasn't so fond of, so she would often act as a servant when people, like, came by. So people would come looking for Louisa May Alcott. And she's like, she's at home today. Okay, I'll pull one of those. She's out to town. (laughs) Can I, the wee old cook, tell her something for you? The wee 35-year-old cook. Yes. In America, who <laughs> talks like that. It was New England. It's oh! kind of like old England. Yeah. Regular England. If you haven't, I don't know. I was going to say if you haven't caught on, but some of you pro- probably don't know Little Women. 
Mm-hmm. It is a semi-autobiographical story. I mean, aside from like the super crazy stuff, <laughs> a lot of her family is reflected in the work. Well, L- Little Women is a story about four sisters mm-hmm. who are very well educated, but rather poor. Yes. And their dad is a, a very kind, sweet man who's never around and always in trouble. He's not in trouble. He's in the middle of a war. That's a kind of trouble. Well, okay. Yeah. One of them gets scarlet fever. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty autobiographical. Yeah. So, so Anna, her oldest sister, is who she wrote the oldest sister about, Meg. Mm-hmm. Um, Meg is much more prim and proper. She does get married. It breaks the heart of Joe, which is the character that That she Louisa, based on herself. Yeah. The, the um, one who leaves the family to become a successful writer, but only gets successful after she stops writing uh, uh, sensational serialized trash. Yeah. Yeah. And writes Little Women. Huh. Her sister Lizzie was Beth, the one that passed away from Scarlet Fever. Uh, and May, her sister May, um, was Amy, the artist. Mm-hmm. And she was an artist. Probably the most interesting thing with the story, though, is the writing difference between Mr. March, the father. Because mm. as you mentioned, Mr. March fought in the Civil War. He was often employed. He he was this constant support of inspiration mm-hmm. um, to the family and, like, love. And, you know, Louisa's father was very present, but he was always focused on perfection and this new idea and was often jumping jobs and moving the family around and there wasn't a lot of stability they moved 22 times in 30 years Mm -hmm. like um there's also you know the lack of financial independence and stability was really hard on the family Mm -hmm. so i think it's very interesting that that's one of the really big changes in how she wrote him Mm -hmm. it's almost maybe her ideal hope a little bit of like Wish fulfillment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, well, if I couldn't have had that. Right, the sisters I have and the dad I kind of wish I had. Yeah. Yeah. And also the Elcott family was often far, far poorer than the March family was ever portrayed in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the the March family they're in the like book. Like, genteel. They're, they're, but they're, they're having a rough patch. A rough patch. She's got to tighten her belts. I mean, and there's a war. There's on. a war on. Yeah, yeah. Where often the Elcots were counting on friends and family to help them mm-hmm. eat. Yeah. And then one of the uh, most like debated characters in the story is Lori. Lori is the the nice boy who lives in town. Who lives next door? Who lives next door? And some of the characters might want to get smoochy with him. Yeah, he really wants to get smoochy with Joe, but she doesn't want to get smoochy with him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, since everyone else is like people in real life. Very clear real life inspiration. Everyone's like, who is this person? (laughs) Uh, And there's always been stuff thrown around like, oh, it was Emerson or one of Hawthorne's like child. Like it was his son or it was this person or like all these things. But one belief is that Lori is modeled after a Polish musician that Louisa met in Europe, um, who she called Laddie. Mm-hmm. Uh, sections of her diary uh, referring to her time there and with him are, like, crossed out. <laughs> so 
maybe they had a falling out. Maybe there's something there. But that's the guess on who it's based on. Mm-hmm. Elcott herself, this is actually something you asked me the other day, she never married. Oh. She, she... Swore all those Alcott heirs, like her great-grand-nieces and nephews then? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she never married, she never had her own child, and her, the character that resembles her, Joe, does. Yeah. Though... Spoilers for the ending. (laughs) Sorry. Of eight different movies. You had a long time to read the book. (laughs) So uh, after the release of part one, she received many letters from girls who were asking, you know, who the characters would marry, because that was the end all be all of, you know, a woman's life. That's how all the stories end. Yes. Do you recall where the split is in the book? Yes. So the split happens. uh, Part one ends when Mr. March comes home at Christmas. Okay. Part two starts with her sister getting married three years later. Okay. Yeah. Where does that line up with her traveling to the boarding house? It's been a long time. She doesn't travel to the boarding house until after her sister gets married. Okay. The whole part one is all about like that that first year, her friendship with Lori. Beth gets scarlet fever. She's yes. dying. Yes. That's when they become close to... Um, the, the man that Meg would eventually marry. Mm-hmm. And she like struggles with that. And Lori's all like, oh, but it's okay. And we can have a relationship. And, uh. Okay. <laughs> so ends with like, yay, family's all back together. Things good. Mm-hmm. Part two, three years later, sister's getting married. Beth still isn't doing well. Eventually dies. Well, eventually dies. Yes. Uh, well, she's, Yeah. And, like, Lori's all, like, I want to get smoochy smooch. And she's all, like, no. And And Amy gets selected to go to Europe, which was always her dream. And she's just like, I just need to get away. Everything is not. So she travels to the big city to pursue her writing career. Yes. Live in a boarding house. Yeah. Meet a bear. He's not that hairy. (laughs) His name is Bear. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Bear. So... With this whole, you know, who are they going to marry thing. Um, she refused to let Joe marry Lori. Mm-hmm. Though she had, like, nothing against, like, marriage and everything, she wanted to battle the conventional idea. You know, one of her big focuses in the book was writing about the girl's individuality and, mm-hmm. and their ambitions. Mm-hmm. And to let her marry, you know, to let Joe marry Lori, it, it didn't do any of that. Right. The, the the boy next door who just wants a sweet, standard 1840s marriage. Yes. No. Wants to have fun and, and marry his best friend. Joe has to go and pursue her dream of becoming a published writer. Yes. Um, and also her marrying, the character marrying um, Professor Bear, who is significantly older, mm-hmm. very established, very, like, intellectual, like, her equal yeah. in these ways... Um, goes against a lot of, like, social norms. And who challenges her by calling her writing trash garbage for babies. Yes. 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 But he pushes her to be better. <laughs> and she pushes him back. And stuff. So that that was, like, her, her big thing with that. Mm-hmm. When you, like, know that the history of um, Louisa May Elcott and her family, it's really interesting to, like, either read or watch the story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's very much to me like laura ingles wilder yeah and how like that's 
even more autobiographical, but there is so much that she left out, changed, altered Mm -hmm. to fit a book, which when then you read, you know, her actual journals and letters, it's kind of shocking to see like the pieces come together of like, how did we get here? How is this what was created? So uh, moving, moving on. A couple years later, uh, Louise's brother-in-law, John, um, unexpectedly died in 1870. Mm. Um, it was only 10 years into his marriage with Anna, um, and they had two sons. Um, several years later, uh, in 1877, Louisa would help Anna purchase a house on Main Street in Concord. Um, it is now known as the Thoreau-Elcott House because Henry David Thoreau lived there before them. <laughs> yeah. It's um, it's got a history, you yeah. know. They they get to share it in time. Yeah. Uh, so Louisa would live there uh, for some time, and it is where she would write uh, Joe's Boys. Mm-hmm. Now Louisa's youngest sister May, um, just like Amy, the character was an accomplished artist. She was both a still life painter and a copyist. Um, and in 1877, she was actually the only American woman to have a painting exhibited at the Paris Salon. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Being selected over Mary Cassette. (laughs) Uh, And the following year, she would have another painting exhibited that many would say was actually like her, you know, like the the work of her career. Mm -hmm. So in 1878, uh, she married. um, She was 28 and her husband, Ernest, was a 22-year-old Swiss tobacco merchant uh, (laughs) and violinist. And he completely supported her career. The following year, she unfortunately died several months after giving birth um, from basically like a delayed, what they thought, like childbed fever, you know, infection. Mm-hmm. Her wish was that her, should something happen to her, that her daughter Lulu um, would be raised by Louisa since uh, her husband traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so Louisa uh, took care of Lulu. Until her death. Mm-hmm. Um, Louisa actually uh, suffered from chronic health problems, including vertigo. Um, she and early biographers thought that her illness and death was actually connected to mercury poisoning um, because of her treatment for typhoid. Uh-huh. But it's more recently believed that she maybe had an autoimmune disease. Later, portraits of her show a rash on her cheeks that is a characteristic of lupus and also due to symptoms she wrote about Mm -hmm. it kind of connects in how dedicated to like the realism of a portrait do you have to be for your painting to be used as diagnostic evidence in a medical capacity there were other things i read about (laughs) too but um, louisa uh died when she was 55 um in 1888 she was buried at Sleepy Hollow Cemetery with the majority of her family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lulu went to live with her father in Switzerland. She was she was only eight at the time. Oh, bad luck, Lulu. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in addition to Little Women and the sequels, mm-hmm. um, Louisa wrote over a dozen novels. Um, she wrote multiple under her pen name. A dozen different story collections for children and a good half dozen more for adults. Uh, There are about a dozen versions of 
movie versions of little women and little men out there. Four to five TV shows, a musical, an opera, and two animes. Look, if there's not giant <laughs> robots in it, I do not care. <laughs> I would watch that Little Women, though. Yeah. So, Little Women little is Mecca. like, it, it left um, a lasting impact mm-hmm. on society. It, it's a book that over the years has, like, crossed all, like, readers from young to old in, like, social classes anime fans like it's, it's crazy <laughs> uh i i think it's so interesting to know that this book that like made her career is so much just about the life she lived yeah i mean great joe marshes through history uh the first one in a film with sound mm-hmm. was played by katherine hepburn she my fave of all people she my girl seriously i just want to be katherine hepburn <laughs> So, like, when I was, like, in college and, like, people were always talking about, like, like what actor, mm-hmm. like, they felt like they were the most, like, I was like, I'm freaking Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> she was not no dainty lady. She was just herself. She speaks to my soul. But, yeah, so we got her. We have uh, Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder skipping well ahead. Uh, we have uh, Sorsha Ronan coming up. Elizabeth Taylor was in the first color Little Women. She didn't play Joe, but she was in it. The 1958 TV special was the first Little Women musical. I love that I can call it the first Little Women musical. Uh, Margaret O'Brien played Beth in that one. Yes. So she dies. Tragically. Yes. Because she's Margaret O'Brien, she has to die uh, tragically. She doesn't cry nearly as much as you think she would. (laughs) That's also something that Margaret O'Brien does. Well, the Winona Ryder one, we get um, Kirsten Dunst. Yes. And um, Claire Danes. And Christian Bale as Laurie. Well, yeah. But uh, the 1978 miniseries has William Shatner as Professor Bear. I've never seen that version. <laughs> Ever. I'm not sure I could handle it. There was a 2012 Lifetime Christmas movie called The March Sisters. I've not seen it. There's that. an adaptation for you. And yes, the BBC has serialized it four separate times. Yeah. Including 2017, which was really good. We watched it was. that one. It yeah, was good. It was great. It's weird seeing all of these English people. In a very, like. In a very Amer- American thing. Yeah. Yes. Or like Anne of Green Gables. That's just, a, I mean, that's not American, that's Canadian, but it's very strange when it's done, like, overseas. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, one thing I did find out that was cool. Yeah. Is that, uh, Orchard House. Yes. We talked about where they lived, um, you know, became a museum. hmm And, uh, one of the big ways that they fundraise to support it is through a 5K, 10K. Oh. Um, and the reason they actually do that is because Louisa often wrote about running and that it was one of her delights. And she would often write about her characters running and enjoying it, which was a challenge to social norms at the time. Because like, of the big skirts. Yes. And, and girls weren't <laughs> supposed to run like they weren't supposed to be physically active. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do this run to raise money for their preservation and education i would love to see the costumes at that 5k (laughs) there's actually um one of the there's a olympian multi-marathon winner lady that's involved with it um that helps get it started and 
I think it's her in the picture on their website running in a full length, like Victorian <laughs> skirt. Um, with her bib attached to it. Well, yeah. It's great. You gotta get the, the chip timing. You yeah. <laughs> so, darling, what did you learn? Well, I learned the next anime I'm watching. Yeah. <laughs> the next two animes I'm so watching. Little Women? I really do enjoy Little Women. Like, I think it is good. I feel like Louisa May Alcott's, like, literary career has the same sort of curse as a one-hit wonder. Mm-hmm. Like in music, like you make one song that is just so good and and gets so much play, no nothing one... else lives up to it. Yeah, like uh, no... or nothing else could possibly connect to uh, the the paying public in the same, in the same way. way. Well, and here's the interesting thing is that you have to also remember she had quite a focus on wanting to make money, mm-hmm. and she found something. That brought her success. Yes. So she wrote multiple sequels. Yes. Didn't branch out too much then. (laughs) Because there was this, like, need Mm -hmm. for stability and success that, like, she didn't have through her other stuff. So that definitely killed some of her creative processes. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations to her, you know, get get that bread. (laughs) Rise and grind. But (laughs) sometimes it works. Like... To to follow the metaphor, some of the best pop songs in history came from one hit wonder band. Yes. <laughs> like some sometimes it's alright, you know? It got her a museum and a half across the some of the houses she lived in. Yeah, and she's on, you know, the Boston Women's Heritage Trail and yeah. part of like <laughs> different museums and she's got five K for herself. Like girl doing good. Mm-hmm. If they make even one anime about my life I, or, or work, I will be so satisfied. Talk about what a weird childhood she had. <laughs> right? This poor girl. It might have sold better if it was just a straight up biography, autobiography. Here's my weird ass dad. <laughs> that would be the title, My Weird Ass Dad. And then the sequel, part three, really throw them off. Yeah. Confuse everybody. And then one just titled Fruitlands. <laughs> Yeah. There's no fruit. We're all dying. There's barely land. We're getting scurvy. My kingdom for a potato. <laughs> uh, so I think we're going to take another break and be back with your letters. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. We just finished talking about Smurfette, the littlest woman I know, and now it's time to read some letters. But Moki's the littlest woman you know. A Smurf is only three apples high. Maggleby wrote in, uh, and they are answering our latest prompt of the last book you read. Uh, And the last book they read was the Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. Uh, They were already a huge fan of Gaiman, so they knew they were going to love it, and they did very much enjoy it. Um, They are also super excited for the return of Riverdale and Sex Archie. We are so close. Oh, boy. What? 22 more late night editing sessions. Got it. I can do it. You can do it. I can do it. I'm really looking forward to it myself. Thank you. 
Isaac writes in with uh, both an answer, but also a picture of a black feral cat that they are trying to trap and, and make sure is healthy and safe out there. Good luck. This Aww. is a very slippery sounding cat. Yes. But the last book Isaac read was Permafrost by uh, Alastair Reynolds, a Welsh sci-fi author and former ESA research astronomer. So you got some bona fides there in your uh, uh, time travel novellas. Yeah. Thank you, Isaac. Peter writes in and uh, is currently reading The Enlightenment by Ulrich Imhoff. Uh, which is interesting, but uh, what they really want to talk about is uh, books by Eric Larson. Uh, we previously talked about uh, oh, yeah. with Devil in the White City yeah, uh, as a book suggestion. And uh, Peter has now gone down the path of reading all of his other books, uh, which I can totally support because I am a big fan. And uh, if you are interested, some of the other books are Thunderstruck, which uh, is focused on the discovery and early utilization of radio, along with the case of Dr. Crippen. Uh, In the Garden of the Beast is the life of the uh, first U.S. ambassador family to Nazi Germany, Mm -hmm. uh, right after Hitler took over. And then uh, Dead Wake is uh, the history of the sinking of of the Lusitania. His books are great. I highly suggest <laughs> them. Peter suggests them. You should read them. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Thank Peter. you, Peter. Ramona writes in again for the second time. So I guess we did all right last episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the last book they read was uh, uh, The Black Lizard Big Book of Locked Room Mysteries, which is a title with a bit of a rhythm to it. Yeah, it's yeah. fun to say. Yeah. yeah. As the name would suggest, it is a collection of locked room mystery stories, including uh, The Murders in the Room Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe, uh, which is in contention for being the, the first locked room mystery and the first detective story. They're quick reads, engrossing reads. They, they engage you both as literature and a puzzle. It's a good way to get through, uh, you know, some time when you'd like something to do, but don't have a lot of time to do it in. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Ramona. Uh, Final Gamer wrote in, um, looking forward uh, for the upcoming Spookum season. Yeah. I am as well. I pulled out all my Spookum stuff today. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to do that episode. No, you're not. It's mine. (laughs) It's my baby. No matter how the calendar lands, I've been informed. I'm not allowed to do that episode. You can do your own Spookums some other time. Yes, dear. So, uh, the last book that Final Gamer finished was Meddling Kids by Edgar Cantero. Basically a dark parody of Scooby-Doo, where a kids detective club revisits the last case uh, years later and try and unravel their the memories of this horrifying thing uh, that left them mentally scarred. Well, that sounds, sounds like a lot yeah. of fun there. Um, I kind of want to read that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Final Gamer. Riv writes in with a few books to talk about. Uh, the first, Honor Girl by Maggie Thrash, an autobiographical graphic novel about the author's a second to last summer at sleepaway camp uh, as the author comes to term with her own queerness. 
also full body burdened by Kirsten Iverson, who grew up in uh, the neighborhood of Rocky Flats, which manufactured plutonium triggers for the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal. And all of the lack of care they took in dealing with those radioactive components. Oh, man, I need to read that. Riv also gives uh, some information uh, that is connected to an episode we've discussed having. So I think this sort of falls under the keep request secret banner. But thank you for that. Yeah. I I feel like that fits. (laughs) And thanks again for, for all the kind words, Riff. Uh, Hannah and Emmy write in again uh, and share some cat and dog pictures of cuteness. Uh, And they are of Cookie, uh, the almost four-month-old, and now double the size. Oh, boy. Um, Also, uh, Emmy really wants us to know that Cookie is her dog. Okay. Cookie Uh, looks like a good dog. That is very important. Yes. Um, And then we also got pictures of Marvel uh, and Coco. Coco's a cat. Coco's a cat. Yeah. Uh, Emmy would also like to share with us that her favorite episode is Reading Rainbow. Uh, Hannah's favorite, uh, thing that did not go as planned is the story of how she got her do- dog, Marvel. Aww. Uh, her childhood dog had passed away and, uh... They had decided it was time to get another, and her mom went to the local animal shelter just to, like, look... Which is always how it gets you. Uh, and saw. <laughs> it's hard to window shop for a dog. <laughs> and she saw Marvel, who was at the time named Wolverine, and fell in love. Is that and, a promotion? And, <laughs> and sent pictures, and they were like, yes, gotta bring that dog home. Uh, Emmy's favorite thing that didn't go as planned is. Hannah's college career, (laughs) which we have been warned sounds mean, but it's sweet. Uh, Hannah's first year at college was kind of rough, and so she took a semester off and came back home, which uh, means it was the first time in Emmy's entire life that she was home uh, and got to be there for Emmy's birthday, uh, which is so sweet. So uh, one of our past prompts was what... uh, you were going to do for Labor Day, and uh, Hannah was at the Renaissance Festival selling hats, mm-hmm. uh, and Emmy was enjoying the day riding rides and playing games. Uh, it was actually the day after her birthday, so they all went out to dinner that night. Oh, that's nice. Happy birthday, Emmy. Happy birthday, Emmy. Uh, the last book they both read was The Lightning Thief by Rick Reardon, which was actually uh, Emmy's birthday present. So they read it together. <laughs> Uh, the last book Emmy read was Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and the current book that Hannah is reading is It by Stephen King. I can't wait for 20 to 30 years from now when one of them will write a novel about their time together. At the Renaissance Festival. And just set the world on fire. Oh, I want to read a novel, actually, about, like, someone's youth at a Renaissance Festival. (laughs) That would be great. So thank you, Hannah Thank you and Emmy. both very much. This year, Claritic writes in to talk about how she spent this year, among other things, reading the entire Southern Reach trilogy by James Vandermeer. You, you've got this government agency trying to go check out a weird alien presence 
alien in every sense of the word, maybe or maybe not, including extraterrestrial. They're not sure. That's why they're investigating. It's just a very weird horror and horror that comes from things being weird. You know, like your your assumptions don't matter for anything. If this sounds a little familiar, it's because it was the basis of one of our favorite films in recent years, Annihilation. Yes. Though, uh, to, to take Annihilation, the book, and the film side by side, you'll see very different things with very different plot beats. Uh, intentionally so, because the director and scriptwriter wanted to be inspired by the, the themes and the meanings and the, the genre of imagery, rather than make a beat-by-beat strict adaptation. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that are different, like about... Uh, character descriptions and backstories are different because they weren't even in the first book. Those things are only mentioned in the sequels. Yeah. Although with that said, by perhaps coincidence, if you believe everyone's story involved, the film does include things from the second and third books. Oh. What are you going to do? What you should do is probably read them and then watch the movie. It's a really good movie. <laughs> Thanks, Claritic. James writes in, and the last book they read was the final volume of Fruit Basket, uh, which is an anime. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a manga adaptation Man- of an anime. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, speaking of anime, they want uh, to share their favorite. Book. Maybe it's the other way around. I don't remember which way Fruit's Basket went, which direction. Not that it really matters to the topic at hand. I don't. I don't know. Okay. James will know. James I don't know. James would probably know. Uh, they also want to share since they're talking about anime. They mention anime, so they. Yeah. Uh, my favorite or their favorite train is the flying pussy foot, uh, pl- pussy foot from Bacano. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it's Bacano. Well, they said it's Bacano. <laughs> Let's call the whole thing. <laughs> uh, and this is apparently a train that runs from Chicago to New York that two gangs try to use uh, for their own ends, but they come into conflict with a third gang and a mysterious killer. Ooh. Ooh. Um, their favorite snack and cheese is string cheese. Efficient. I love it. I'm all about that string cheese. Least favorite deadly disease is pneumonia. Uh, it sucks. Don't get it. But they do point out that getting it resulted in them leaving school and through a series of events, finding a major and graduating. Ah, so it worked out. Get get off that school track and get on a, a better one for you. I mean, all's well that ends well. Yeah. Sorry about the surgery scars, though. Uh, and James does not want to say this is their favorite mistake, but a mistake they find interesting. Fair, fair. Uh, is the bombing of Nagasaki. A war crime I find interesting. <laughs> because so much of it has to do... With the correspondence that happened uh, between Japan and the U.S. with surrendering and misunderstanding, like, context Mm -hmm. due to cultural and, like, language barriers. So I understand why you want to say 
interesting mistake <laughs> and not favorite. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. Our last letter for this episode comes from The Willennial, and the last book they read was Blood of Tyrants by Naomi Novik, uh, one of a series about Napoleonic Wars, but with dragons. Ooh! Dragons. What if your BFS was a big, smart dragon? But the uh, last nonfiction book they've read is The Invention of Nature, Alexander Humboldt's New World. Uh, the most famous scientist of his day, whose notoriety has flagged over recent generations, but ask Willennial anything about him. They'll, they'll be able to share some facts. And if you want to get good books like that, check out your library. I bet your local library has or can get for you any of the books we've mentioned in this prompt. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of libraries... Our Chicago Public Library is uh, getting rid of all fines. And forgiving outstanding ones. Yes. It's very exciting. Yes. They hope it will bring back thousands and thousands of users to the library who were not coming back because of fines. I hope they're right about that. Yeah. yeah. It's very exciting. And thank you to everybody who wrote in. Uh, if you would like to send us a letter, where can those go, dear? Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear your stories, your questions, your show suggestions, your corrections, and yes, the responses to our regular prompts. Darling, what's our next prompt? For the next episode, I would like to hear about people's favorite mineral. Mineral? They can't all be winners, okay? It's, it's episode 87 next time. <laughs> what are we going to do for episode 100? Live from Mackinac Island, episode 100. <gasps> oh! But yes, we do look forward to getting all of those and, and hearing from you at historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, while you're out there, you can also uh, give us a rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you hear us. It does go a long way, and it's something else we use to just, you know, touch base with you and, and see what people think. Yeah. Uh, you can also tell a friend. If you happen to be at your local library checking out one of these titles, mm -hmm. why not discuss some podcasts while you wait in line? You Sounds like who, a great idea. You know who recommended I, I try this book out? A stranger I've never met, but we both listen to the same podcast. Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> great conversation, Siddhartha. I mean, that's a whole story already. Another way to, to keep in touch with us is on social media, on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. All the, at History Honeys. If you had followed us on those platforms, you would have been aware that this episode you're listening to right now was a little delayed. Yes. We do apologize. but I was dumb. <laughs> I deleted all of my research. Yay! <laughs> I'm so smart and life is totally going my way. It was a bit of a take-two situation. It was bad. <laughs> I wasted a whole day. But here we are. It's but fine. here we are. I, I just use that to illustrate that it, it is worth doing. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard, but it's worth it. <laughs> it's hard to follow us on Twitter? I don't think so. Oh, I thought you meant, like, making this podcast is worth doing. <laughs> that makes much more sense about social media. Okay. <laughs> I'm tired. Uh, so, with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your, your honey. very sleepy honey. <laughs>
how the doggy's gonna get the toy. Go! Oh my god. <laughs> we gotta think through these things. I thought 